Hi, it's Elise Lunen, host of Pulling the Thread. Today's guest is the wonderful Jesse Hempel, author of the powerful new memoir, The Family Outing. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Hi, it's Elise Lunen, host of Pulling the Thread. I'm an author, podcast host, and parent who built a long career in media. I grew up in a state of perpetual curiosity, investigating the world and asking a lot of questions. In this show, I chat with culture-defining leaders, thinkers, and experts about this rare moment that we find ourselves in and how to think about our own lives and experiences within a larger social and spiritual construct. My childhood was a childhood in the closet. It had some good things, it had some bad things. Like living in the closet is, you know, not always terrible. It's simply not the greatest expression of, of who we have the capacity to become, I think. For my parents, you know, as my father went along in my childhood, he became more and more withdrawn and kept trying to do the right thing, was closeted even to himself. This was a secret he was keeping even from himself for most of my childhood. But it made him kind of a lousy partner, right? My mother's experience was just a very, very lonely experience. Her life looked on the outside exactly like it was supposed to look. We lived in a nice community. She was married to a lawyer. You know, we looked great on a Christmas card, but it felt cavernous, just vacant. And left with so much time on her own, she really struggled not to let her memory present her with things to work on. And that led her to be very depressed throughout my childhood. So says Jesse Hempel, a longtime media and technology journalist and award-winning host of the podcast Hello Monday, and the author of the new memoir, The Family Outing. Her book is a profound telling of family dynamics offering lessons on accepting one's truest self. Specifically, it's the story of a family who comes out of the closet, pretty much all of them, to embrace their queer identities. Even Jessie's mother, who is straight, lives in a type of closet, Jessie explains, as she nearly became the victim of a serial killer as a teenager. This unconfronted trauma affects her entire family's life. In our conversation, Jessie shares her journey to emphasize the detrimental side effects of shame and the non-linear path to liberation. Our conversation explores the value of authenticity and navigating parts of ourselves we have not yet learned to face. She believes that when we step into ourselves, culture has the capacity to shift, allowing us all to live more gracefully. In her worldview, we all live in a type of closet. Okay, let's get to our conversation. When you think about this book, which obviously is like, as you call it throughout the project, this vulnerable 
very beautiful and thoughtful and loving excavation of your life. And so it's called the family outing for a reason, right? Your mother, and she came out of her own closet. I loved that part at the end where you talk about how we're all in a closet. I think that's so true, right? Particularly Mm -hmm. now. But when... Did you write the proposal? Did you start the book as like a a therapeutic process of trying to make sense of the threads or how this might have been obvious to other people and wasn't obvious to you all? Well, I think, you know, what happened is shortly after I saw you, it was March of 2020. And I, everything I thought I understood about myself shifted overnight, right? Like I was a professional working in New York City, had a very busy life, big extrovert. And then I was somewhat afraid of losing my job living in my wife's parents upstairs, you know, deep introvert just overnight. And in that time, I did that thing that I think a lot of people did for the first couple of weeks where I like Zoom partied my ass off, right? Like I (laughs) Zoom yoga and I Zoom cocktail hour and and after all that Zooming, very quickly, I was just done. And I wanted to speak to no one, not really even my friends. And days would sort of pass in a blur. But I I was talking to my family, even more than I talked to them, which was kind of a lot. I was Zooming with them and talking with them on the phone pretty much every day. And we were quarantining in four different states and five different homes. And I thought, well, that's weird because... If you'd asked me 20 years ago, I think I would have told you I didn't like my family all that much. We had a pretty difficult time of it. So how is it that now these years later we're close? And so I'd already started on the the process of, of writing a book proposal that was a little bit more academic and intellectual in, in approach in some ways, where I was actually interested in fundamental questions about, well, you know, why are we all queer? What does that mean? I stopped being interested in that as much and became much more interested in relationally. What did the fact of our coming out do to the way we were able to know each other? And Mm. could I try to trace that over the course of two decades? And the answer is sort of, maybe the answer is the book, I guess. Yeah. So interesting. Follow me. This is sort of tangentially related, but I was listening to Anderson Cooper's new podcast about grief, which like, don't put on mascara and listen to that <laughs> podcast. I was, he was interviewed a good friend of mine, BJ Miller's palliative care physician on the third episode, I think. And they both had siblings who died by suicide. And one of the threads of the conversation was, I thought I knew my sibling, right? Like, did I know them at all, et cetera. And the sort of pain of that, of like that, that, like, were we ever close? Was was that a delusion? And it's so interesting. You know, my brother is gay. He came out, he was sort of forcibly outed or accidentally outed himself in boarding at the very, very end of boarding school. And the rumor mill sort of got to me before he got to me. And I remember feeling so upset, like so sad, not that my brother was gay, but that he didn't feel like he could tell me and that I heard from like four gossipy high school students. And this feeling, and obviously my brother's alive and we're very close, like closer than we've ever been. But this like, was it all a lie? It's interesting how like, it's really none of my business. Like my, I don't actually care about my brother's sex life at all, but it is interesting how these 
huge questions of identity shake the foundation of like what we think we know about our siblings. I think that's so true. And I think it's because they actually shake the core of what we think we know about ourselves. Mm. I mean, growing up, I understood myself first and foundationally as somebody with a younger sister and then another younger sister. And then I remember that when my brother came out to me as transgender, by the time he came out to me, I'd already been out as a gay woman for five, six years. I lived in the Bay Area. I fancied myself very progressive. I had a shaved head. (laughs) And I had trans friends. And I remember he called me up and he said, you know, when I come to your grad school graduation, I'm going to be using male pronouns. And I would appreciate it if you could call me Evan now. And I immediately minimized it. I was like, uh, Evan, I'm your big sister. I know you. Like you were wearing a dress at Christmas time. I remember that dress. I remember what it looked like. I know this is just a phase. And now I look back and I just feel so sad for my poor brother and also disappointed in myself because you would think I having come out, having asked the world to step up and give me more to that, more more in a better reaction than that, you would think that I would have gotten it right, right? That I would have, instead of immediately making it about me, shirking back in fear and therefore minimizing his experience that I would have found the space to say, just simply tell me more. But my first reaction was to just shut him down. And I think that's actually often what we do because when we learn that the most fundamental aspects of the people who are closest to us, and by closest, I don't even mean emotionally closest. I mean like physical proximity, like our parents, our siblings. When we learn that they're their sense of self actually is misaligned with our view of them, we have to then reshift how we think of ourselves. That's a lot of work. It is a lot of work. And I mean, this was a while ago, right, too? So like far less cultural context than we have now and and or understanding and or conversation and or support. So I don't know. I'm sure similarly, I would have been like, I don't understand this and I don't know what you could possibly mean, right? Like the the cognitive dissonance, I feel like particularly then I would have probably had the exact same reaction. Yeah. And how do you move forward with it? And my brother as a trans person too was asking me to take an expansive view of what that meant. My brother, even then, even my brother at 22 years old knew that eventually he wanted to carry a baby and so I, being a very fairly binary thinker, and I want to take everybody back to what 2003 felt like for you. 2003 is almost 20 years ago, Elise, right? Mm-hmm. And what culture was like in 2003 and what you saw around you in 2003. I was like, well, how can you be trans and want to carry a baby? I mean, isn't that the most feminine thing that one could want to do with one's physical body? And my brother's response always was like, you're so narrow-minded here. Why can't I be both? He would always turn the question back on me and bless him. He had so much grace. He never shut me out or got angry at me when I would ask these questions. But his answer always was like, why do you need to define me? And of course, now in 2022, where we are now, this idea of being non-binary, this idea of being expansive in what gender even means and being the one to make the call yourself and centering your own experiences, it's something that we talk about, but not then. 
And we don't really understand it. I mean, it's almost like an idea of androgyny or like above gender. It's an interest, and it's an interesting to me too, as sort of an outsider to this conversation, but watching it unfold and trying to understand, it's this like, I am superseding gender, I'm above gender, I'm non-binary, do not define me. And then the language, we have such inadequate language, but instead of sort of acknowledging that, there's this desire to define the two seem at odds, I guess, or it's a paradox to me. Our language is inadequate. And so how do you, does that make sense? And then the way that we're sort of trying to be so specific about the language about something that we cannot actually define. Yeah, it's a, it's a mess, Elise, right? And I think even, <laughs> you know, so I've got a, I've got a, you know, I've got a son and a daughter. My son turned four this week. He's little. And he started pre-K last year and had a non-binary teacher. And so I was like, in my, you know, I was like, okay, I got to get, I got to get their pronouns down. I got, we're going to go with they, them. I'm going to get it right. And I really don't want Jude to mess this up. So I sat down, Jude, and I told Jude, okay, you know, this is your teacher. His name is so-and-so. And this is your teacher. Their name is so-and-so. And I only had to tell Jude once and there was never a moment where my three-year-old thought about it. Didn't get it. Yeah, you just got it right. Like snapped right into it and never had a problem understanding it. And I think that I have grown up in this culture so deeply entrenched in the binary that while I may be proficient in the ideas that are coming to the surface right now, I will never be fluent in them. It's mm. like I can see the revolution, and I I want to make space for the revolution, and I at once understand that it is not mine. Mm, I love that, Jesse. That's beautiful. And I agree. I'm with you where it's the language trips me up. I mean, I'm sure I mess up all over the place and I'm not aware of it. And I recognize it's like, how do I um, not even dodge the conversations? I think that conversation is so fascinating and interesting and important for all of us. And as someone who is a more masculine woman and I get, won't surprise you, I get misgendered all the time which is interesting to me. I mean, it doesn't, I don't really care. But I also similarly, I'm like, why are we as a culture, why do we have gendered <laughs> language? I mean, it's not as bad as French, but why do we have different words for things, whether you're a man or a woman? And why does it matter to us so much? And how do we get above that? You know? Yeah. When you let me know, you figure that out. I would, well, I would, I would, Love to figure that out. I'm trying to write a book, or I wrote a book <laughs> about, in part, about sort of the balance of masculine and feminine and divine masculine and feminine and what it, it would be like for those energies to be balanced within each of us. Because I think that's what we want, right? You know, right. your brother wanted to embody the feminine and some care. He wants to be a nurturing parent. And it's unfortunate that that biologically is relegated to people who have the anatomy of a woman, but men have that capacity too. Yeah, deeply. They have that capacity. And like, and so much it's the work that we choose to do. It is the communities we put ourselves in. You know, even as a gay woman, I, you know, so many people said to me, oh my goodness, you wrote a book in the, the same year you had a baby. And my response to them would often be jokingly, well, you know, I have it like I have a secret weapon and my secret weapon is that I have a wife. <laughs> and, and also it's true. And I, I wish I lived in a world where it was less true. And I do know some incredible artist female friends, one in particular, 
who have male spouses who assume the the sort of head of household role within the domestic sphere. But it really is not the norm in my, even in my very progressive circle in my, you know, blue state life. Yeah, no, but hopefully, I mean, that's obviously what we're being called to do. High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in the seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org slash students. That's lls.org slash students. So let's talk about your parents and your mom. Your mom was the most fascinating character. I mean, I know she's not a character. I know she's your mom, but her story, and you you obviously explore this, and I'm not a psychologist, but reading about her early experience, her glance with a pretty incredible danger, right? And then the way, you know, you sort of tell it, which is very understandable, is that you're your dad presented himself as like a perfectly viable, lovely, smart, handsome alternative to living with her parents. But you also have to imagine when something like that happens, and I know she's done trauma work, but that she must have come to distrust herself and her own intuition so dramatically, right? Completely, right? Yeah. So there's my mom, and she's living in 1960s Midwest, right, Ypsilanti, Michigan. And during the period that she is a teenager, there is a a murderer in town who is killing basically people in her community. So it is the assistant art teacher at the high school. It is the deacon at the church's secretary at work, all people that she has a direct connection to. And this happens over a course of years and people get more and more frightened and all of the men in town become volunteer police officers, my grandfather included, and, you know, all the young women, particularly if they look anything like the women who are being targeted, i.e. exactly like my mom, they're encouraged to keep curfew, they're encouraged to be careful and not go with strangers. And my mom's life is unfolding against this backdrop. And even if you didn't have her experience, I think you were shaped by this if you grew up at this time in Ypsilanti. But, you know, then my mom, at the place where she's working, she has a crush on a guy and it comes out. The crush begins to be realized and they start kind of flirting with each other and they're kind of maybe about to start seeing each other. They talk on the phone a lot, right? And mom goes to hear him play music. And then it comes out that he is somehow involved in the killings. And I won't give it away exactly because it's actually worth the read. But what this does immediately for my mom is it it terrifies her. And it also makes her stop trusting herself and her sense of judgment in any way. Mm. And her parents, who loved her very much in the middle of the 20th century, when I think that this was the norm in parenting, 
said to her, this is horrible. You're never going to talk to him again. Please don't talk about this again. Let's just not talk about this at all ever again. And so she didn't. She put it away. She met my father, the effeminate son of a minister. She settled down. She had me. Her pride and joy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that she anticipated I would go on to write a book about my childhood. So I don't know. Talk to her next week. But but has she – and it seems like, you know, and then your, your father – goes on to ultimately come out, right? After you. Yes. Well, and I can I can I'll say, you know, my childhood was a childhood in the closet. It had some good things, it had some bad things. Like living in the closet is, you know, not always terrible. It's simply not the greatest expression of of who we have the capacity to become, I think. For my parents, you know, as my father went along in my childhood, he became more and more withdrawn and kept trying to do the right thing, was closeted even to himself. This was a secret he was keeping even from himself for most of my childhood. But it made him kind of a lousy partner, right? My mother's experience was just a very, very lonely experience. Her life looked on the outside exactly like it was supposed to look. We lived in a nice community. She was married to a lawyer. You know, we looked great on a Christmas card. But it felt cavernous, just vacant, and Mm -hmm. left with so much time on her own, she really struggled not to let her memory present her with things to work on, and that led her to be very depressed throughout my childhood. So Mm -hmm. really until the moment that our life spontaneously erupted and we all came out, things were just dark and stayed. It felt like a very long winter. Mm -hmm. You felt the weight of that depression most specifically. You were you became the object of her. Yeah, you- well, I, I mean, I reminded her of my dad. My dad and I are, we're just alike. We just we talk alike. We have the same sort of annoying way that we ask the same question over and over again. We're just alike. And my dad was really troublesome for her, but she couldn't quite look that head on my dad was really troublesome for her but to really confront that would be to shake the foundation of their marriage which was not something that she could envision doing and so instead she just got very mad at me all the time and that grew to become it was it was sort of emotionally manipulative it occasionally was violent never anything all that significant but mostly I just didn't understand why I was targeted and nobody else did either really right you know. Yeah. And as your dad was distancing and being avoidant and I mean you write about this, but at what point were you it doesn't it didn't read to me like you felt like you had to carry the secret of being gay for a long time but or queer, but do you was that a burden for you? I mean, look, I, I kind of knew all along that I was gay. But in the 80s and 90s, I didn't have a term for that. There were lots of gay people around me. We just never talked about it. So like much later on, I learned that the church organist was gay and that my mom's guitar student was gay, but we just never named it. And so I just was like, well, I'm just going to hide this part of me. I don't, I'm just going to hide it. But then, you know, I turned 18. I went off to college. I landed at Brown University where I had lots of positive role models of people who had come out of the closet. And it took me about five minutes to be like, well, this is pretty good. (laughs) Another five minutes to shave my head. And I was like off to the races. I, you know, I had a, you know, 
I was very lucky in that I had a great experience. And and Elise, I, I told my parents in a car on the way home from college, everybody was seat belted in. We were looking straight ahead. It seemed like a good enough time. And I remember I was in the back seat and my mom in the passenger seat started crying. And then she said, well, you know, I think your cousin's gay. He's very emotional. He was 11 at the time. Like, okay, mom. <laughs> and then she was like, you know, I, I totally love you. We're going to figure this out. I just, I love you no matter what. Which, by the way, is totally a right thing to say. Like, when you don't know what to say, just go back there, you know. My dad said nothing. And the next morning, he came into the kitchen and he poured himself a bowl of cereal and I was eating breakfast. And he said, oh, you know, I thought I was gay once too. And I said, really, dad? What happened? And he said, oh, you know, you make choices in life. And I I married your mom. And then he walked out of the house. (laughs) I was like, oh, oh, dad's gay, you know. (laughs) (laughs) So you knew then. I, you know, I suspected then. That was the moment where I was like, oh, you know, he did get me the like six CD Barbara Streisand collection when he got me my first CD player. Like I started to, I was like, oh, there's a lot to unpack here and it's very possible. But still, it didn't seem to me like anything could shake the foundation of my parents' marriage, which I didn't really understand, but I didn't understand that much about life. Plus, I was an adolescent and I wasn't interested in many people apart from myself deeply. But three years later, my sister was home from college and she was messing around on the computer and she tripped into some messages for my father that revealed that actually he had male lovers, definitely online, maybe in real life. And that was the moment when he basically got kicked out of the closet. That's really the best term for it. He he tried real hard in that moment to you know, deny it to, to like put the genie back in the bottle. Terrible metaphor. Didn't work anyways. Eventually, you know, my parents' marriage was in question. They went to therapy and that started the chain reaction where the therapy brought up for my mom the things that she hadn't spoken about. And she finally had to do, had the opportunity to do the work around the events from her adolescence which my dad didn't even really know about before then. And then, you know, in that period too, my sister came out as bisexual. I did the thing I do very well. I minimized it. I was like, oh, Katya, you just want to be like everybody else. (laughs) She married a woman. She has a great life right now. She has a couple of kids. She's very happily settled in, in Oregon. And then, of course, my brother came out as transgender. And all that change really happened in a very short period of time, or at least it initiated but like to me, the most interesting thing is what happened after that, as we all did the, our own work on ourselves, like how we were able to, you know, to know each other better and differently and to move past things that seemed like you could never move past them. Wondering what to give your mom or wife or daughter or friend or godmother for Mother's Day? From someone who cares a lot about her bed and sleep, may I recommend something from Cozy Earth? In fact, becoming a mom and suffering through its required sleep deprivation is where my obsession with sleep started, so it's one of those gifts that might really bring things full circle. After all, women in particular are really impacted by sleep deprivation, which has massive implications for our health. Between the hypervigilance of motherhood and the hot flashes of perimenopause and menopause, we get a raw sleep deal. 
So let me tell you about giving women you love their best night's sleep ever. Let me tell you about Cozy Earth. Their sheets are made from viscose from bamboo, and they are indescribably soft. So soft, like a bed hug, like no other. Now, I'm not the only mega Cozy Earth fan. Every single year since 2018, Cozy Earth products have been named as one of Oprah's favorite things. Oprah picked their best-selling bamboo sheet set because they're temperature-regulating and incredibly soft, and she picked their joggers and their socks and their pajamas. Meanwhile, Cozy Earth doesn't just make sheets. They also make pillows, blankets, and more. Cozy Earth makes their products by sourcing responsibly, They use the best suppliers with an eye toward quality, responsible production, cutting-edge technology, and premium materials. They're also incredibly durable. They get better with every wear, and they have an enhanced weave that is guaranteed not to pill even after washing and drying. All Cozy Earth products can be returned or exchanged within 100 days and include an additional 10-year warranty against defects. This Mother's Day, Treat mom to the luxury she deserves with Cozy Earth bedding and sleepwear and prioritize her self-care and sleep health. She deserves it. Don't forget to use my promo code THREAD at checkout for 35% off at CozyEarth.com. After placing your order, select podcast in the survey and select my show in the drop-down menu that follows so they know that we sent you. One of the parts that I thought was so touching is, you know, your parents determining that they're going to, I don't know, they they were going to stay married and that your dad was going to explore his gayness, which obviously didn't last for that long. But you write, mom's permission here is crucial. Dad accepts it and he begins to attend. He drives to Boston twice a month for more than a year. Through the group, he learns just how many original approaches to marriage people can take. At the time, I don't, I don't think to look for a support group for mom, a shared community of women whose husbands are coming out. That's the thing about coming out as queer. It's hard, but you're also entering into a community. There are people there to catch you if you look for them. When you are the spouse of someone who is coming out, it's hard, and you are being left. I thought that was so, you know, throughout the book, really feeling like with and for your mom and this idea of like you everyone entering into their real identity or a new identity or coming closer to themselves, right? And this idea I thought was so beautifully stated of you guys weren't leaving her, but her husband's leaving her and the very fabric of their relationship in many ways. Again, like I think we culturally, we go straight to, oh, then there was not, then it was all a lie, right? And that's not true either. And love is complex and about so much more than sex but yeah I really like feel for your mom in that moment you know it took me a beat to get to that and when I got to that it felt like the most true thing about the book and about my mother's character and about what it is to be the straight person in a relationship in which one person leaves because they are queer which is that you you didn't ask for the reinvention here. It's being foisted upon you and you don't get a club and you don't get a rainbow flag. And even if you do get a club, because I'm sure actually if I'd looked around, I could have maybe found a support group for my mom. It's not a club you actually want to stay in for that long. It's people who share something that you don't like about yourself and that you don't mm-hmm. understand about 
you know, at the end of the book, I just basically one because she's got this point of view that is so persistent that not to include it would be not to tell you the whole story about my family, which is just that she was somehow wronged here. And she still is angry about that. And mm. her anger needs to be recorded. And I, as her daughter, I'm like, yeah, but can't you, be, can't you get over it? It's been 20 years, so much of your life that you've made made since then. And there are so many things that make you happy. Like, I don't understand why you still have to carry this anger. And then toward the toward the end of the process of reporting the book, I finally got it. I didn't have to understand it for it to be true for her, that she was angry. She was very, very angry. That is her truth. And is she, not that you understand necessarily, who is she? Is she most angry at your father or at herself? Her expression of it is that she is most angry at my father. My father is a very convenient person for her to be angry at because she doesn't have to see him. They live in different states across the country from each other and have very few reasons to interact anymore. Mm. Um, you know, do I think that she might be angry at herself as well? Sure, but like again, oldest child, armchair expert. I have a friend's kid who has a name. She calls it the main character syndrome. I have main character syndrome. Yeah. Don't do you know all? what this is? Have you heard of this? Yeah. That we yeah, center I'm ourselves. Sure we do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Always. And this might be too dramatic of a reading, though. But going back to Ypsilanti and and your mom and this the music, the night that she goes to see him play, she does save her own life in some ways. I mean, who know who can say what's to happen? But her intuition, at some point, she was like, I'm going to go. I'm not going to stay till the end of the set and maybe kiss this boy who I have a crush on, right? Like, she leaves. She does. She does. And I think it's worth noting, right? She goes, he invites her to hear music all the time. She finally goes. She gets a friend. They get into this bar where he's playing. They listen. It's getting late. It's getting close to curfew, which I believe is around nine o'clock. Then she knows her parents will be waiting up for her at home. Or she uses that as the excuse, really. She just gets a sense that she shouldn't stay to the end. She doesn't need to find out what's going to happen. And that that works out for her. Yeah. But the thing about that, Elise, right, is that when you are a, a woman, a young woman in the world, you are vulnerable and crediting one's intuition for saving one in, an, in a moment like that suggests the opposite is possible as well, that should it have gone the other mm. way, it would be somehow your fault. And with my mom in particular, you know, she, she perseverated over the last woman who was murdered, who is a woman who got on the back of a guy's motorcycle for a, a ride, then was killed. And she's just so angry at this woman. And she is angry at this woman because to think about it in any other way would suggest that we all as as women in the world and particularly as young women are just vulnerable out in the world living our lives and that bad things can happen to us and we may not be able to control it. And the truth of that is is just too much to stomach. Yeah. No, it's so, so important. And such a strange thing, this life, right? Particularly in in maybe they're not more complex, but as you're, as you're living your life against a backdrop of so much social programming, right? Particularly your brother, but you as well, clearly your father, particularly in the, the scenes with his dad were stunning. I thought we can talk about that in a minute, but that 
sort of lean back or lean forward? Like, am I supposed to drive this or is this supposed to unfold? Is one of the most (laughs) difficult questions in life, right? Like for your mom, it's like your dad sort of falls into her lap, right? As this exit strategy or this good choice or this optionality. And at a certain point, it's like, when do you lean into your, I mean, so much of it is a crapshoot, right? But yeah. we're also being asked to sort of more and more create or figure out who we really are in the context of what the world would suggest that we should be. And it's easier now, but you can sense sort of like your mom's lean back or sort of hope and a prayer, right? Of like, let this unfold in a way that is safe. Yeah. Yeah, entirely. You know, I do hope it's, I do hope we, we get better at making decisions in the moment as we grow as a culture to know ourselves more authentically, which is what I believe is, is happening across the board right now Mm -hmm. in, in North America, at least that we are being invited to step into more authentic ways of knowing ourselves and that this gives us better tools to make decisions as we go. But we will still trip along and live our lives in real time, (laughs) right? We won't conduct them from some future version of ourselves. And so I don't know that we'll make better choices or even though that there are better choices for us to make. We'll just become more graceful as we live. Pulling the Thread is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes Max, my oldest, tells me he wants to go in the back of the house and talk. What he means by this is purely the verb. He doesn't want to have a conversation. He wants to talk, to vent and unload, to fill me with factoids. Mom, want to know 40 things about acid rain? But more often, to get things off his chest. It's fascinating to listen to him and what he perceives to be injustices, annoyances, and harms. I recognize that in those moments, he doesn't want advice or for me to higher mind him or for me to justify his own feelings to him, but simply to be a container for the one-sided stream, to just listen. I recognize what he's doing because I do it every week too, in therapy. I was thinking just the other week that it's rare to find someone who will just listen, maybe point out some patterns or hold me accountable when I say something wild. Wait, Elise, pause. Do you really feel that about yourself? Or why do you think you care about this so much? But aside from these moments of intervention when my therapist makes me reflect or feel, I'm doing the talking. And it helps me feel so much freer. Thank God for therapy. This is one of the reasons I'm very excited for therapeutic solutions like BetterHelp. They have licensed therapists who are available worldwide and specialize in depression, anxiety, sleep disturbances, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBTQA issues, grief, and self-esteem. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with the therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com PTT today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, 
H-E-L-P dot com slash P-T-T. Let's talk about your grandfather's name was Ed, right? Mm-hmm. And that sort of at the end of Ed's life, and he was a – was he a minister? He was or just, a Methodist okay, minister. Me- Methodist yeah. minister. And when he's – at the end of his life and your dad is sort of making his trips to see his dad and all of these people, you know, just the the torture of those events, the people who are around in prayer circle with Ed and sort of this desire, right? It seemed like – I don't know if it was a compulsion, a desire to tell his dad the truth about who he is, right? And then ultimately – not having that chance and deciding that it's the more ethical thing. I think those were your words or his words. The more ethical choice was to like that your grandfather just didn't want to know. Such an interesting and heartbreaking moment of like wanting to be seen and then recognizing like someone doesn't really want to see you like that. Yeah. You know, my grandfather knew his son. My grandfather knew his son when he sent his son off to Christian boarding school in order to try to make him straighter in the eighth grade. And that probably wasn't going to change. And my dad felt like that was true. My dad was 50 years old when he came out. My grandfather was already well into his late 70s and into his early 80s. He had Parkinson's. He wasn't healthy. He even even in his sort of poor health, he would go and campaign picket at the local bookstore because they had LGBTQ literature. And and you can guess, and I certainly think that maybe part of that was just his extreme reaction to understanding this truth about his son, because I just believe intuitively he did understand it. And I think that my father understood that he was never going to get the reaction that he wanted from his father. And the thing that he wrestled with is, did he need to come out to his dad anyways for him? Did he need to tell his dad his truth so that he he felt absolved in some way? And my dad decided he didn't need that. This was an older man. This man was going to die. If my dad shared this with Ed, it would be very unsettling for Ed. Ed probably wouldn't accept it. He never accepted that my dad divorced. And they would only grow less close. Um, and you could say that that closeness was already tainted by by this big secret that existed, but my dad would only know him less in those last few years of his life. I don't think that my dad had fully come to a sort of a sense of what he was going to do before he lost his dad. He was pretty close. He was pretty certain that he wasn't going to say anything. But then, of course, my grandfather died. And I think what is most relevant is the fact that he doesn't regret his decision at all now. Yeah. Well, you have this line, in the end, his peace won't come from Ed anyhow dad's acknowledging that he will find it on his own, which is a powerful statement, right? Because so often we seek peace from other people or we want that validation or that recognition. And this idea of, I mean, I'm certainly your grandfather could have given it to him in some way, but his refusal to accept it wouldn't have helped, I would imagine. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, it just would have probably been more torture, right? Like my father, when he visited his his father, often there would be people from the church praying in the living room. And his father would always announce his son had arrived and then announce his version of my dad's identity. Oh, you know, to, 
in the case of the chapter in the book, like today is his wedding anniversary, at which point my dad would say, well, yeah, that's true, but we're divorced. And grandpa would say, well, no, but but still today is an important day because it is the anniversary of his marriage. You know, that doesn't make a person feel great, right? It's terrible, right? So how do you weather that? Well, hopefully you have a therapist on call and you've got your best friend in the wings and you have somebody to buy you a stiff drink and you... Like do all the things you know of to take good care of yourself and be gentle to yourself in the process. Mm-hmm. And I think that my dad did do a good job of that. But you're not going to get you what you want in that situation if you demand that that person step up and accept you for who you are. Right. You know, recognizing that you, your family, and the way that you describe it, sort of in this distancing, avoidant way. I loved, I loved Ron your dad's husband who passed and the way that he seemed to sort of teach you all in some ways, or at least you and your siblings and maybe your dad, like how to be a loving family, right? I thought sort of his singing, the way that you wrote about him and the way he gave you this mantra, you sit next to your mother at her sister's funeral, another way of saying it, you show up. Will you tell us a little bit about Ron? Oh, he was so great. Yeah. He was my dad's first husband after he divorced. He came into our life a few years later. And Ron had lived his entire life with HIV. He had been diagnosed in 1987. And when we met him, which was, I don't know, maybe 2006, he, you know, he lived his whole life thinking he was going to die and he kept not dying and the drugs came out and then he started living and he felt like he had a second chance at life. But as a result of this, he had never had a family and he'd really wanted children. And so when he fell in love with my dad, he also inherited the three of us grown up kids and we were like the bonus prize. I would even say we were actually the prize and my dad was the extra after a little bit. And he was just, I mean, first of all, he was the kind of guy that everybody loves. But also we started to see our family the way that he saw it, which was amazing. We're just so lucky to have children, to have sisters, to have a father. And it was contagious. And also, he was the dad we always wanted. He picked up our phone, the phone every time we called, and he wanted to hear every single thing. And he showered us with attention, and he asked about our emotional lives. And then he died. And I say it like that because, well, first of all, that was really not fair. You know, he eventually succumbed to cancer that he got from the original cocktail, which was very, very strong in the 90s. Um, And so a lot of people developed this liver cancer that eventually killed him. But the other thing is that he died before we had to have any of the rough things that eventually happen when you're close to people, right? We were still so thoroughly in the honeymoon phase of being in love with Ron, and then we lost him. But his legacy is important in the sense that it seems like he, maybe you already knew, but, well, maybe not, because, right, this was before you met your wife, like before Mm -hmm. you sort of understood what it is to be in a secure functioning relationship. (laughs) (laughs) She forced you into a she did different way, lovingly. But I loved, I loved the short glimpse into Ron in the book, and just that moment where he's like, I loved too that you're you didn't, you know, that it wasn't your inclination. You did, you weren't close to this aunt, right, who died, and you were like, I don't want to go. And then he was like, No, 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 you go, you go, yeah. you sit by your mother's side at her sister's funeral, you show up. Yeah. I mean, I just remember that funeral because it was more a function of it was $500 for the ticket, which at that point in my life seemed like so much money. And I was going to have to miss work 
And all of those reasons seemed like reasons not to go. And if I didn't go, nobody was going to say, well, you know what, Jesse should have been there and she wasn't there. It wasn't the kind right. of thing where somebody would say that. And so I remember talking it over with my dad, who was you know, just very like, well, you could, you know, you could go or you could not go. And <laughs> then Ron was like, oh, no, the answer is so obvious here. You go. And I've never regretted it, by the way. It's been, you know, more than a decade. And I still feel so grateful that I got to sit next to my mom. So interesting talking to Jesse, who I adore, not only because the trajectory of her family is fascinating, but that she's such an objective observer in some ways. And she talks a lot about, she calls it the project and the way that she is fact-checking herself throughout the quote-unquote reporting of her own life story um, to ensure that it is true. But memory, as we know, is nebulous. And we're often just left with the emotions and the feelings and what's not said, which if you've listened to the episode with Galit Atlas, is passed on. We whisper it into each other's ears. And so all of all of that trauma or unease that her mother is carrying and what her father refuses to acknowledge even as his deepest truth about his identity is passed on to the kids and certainly makes them question their own reality, which is why I think Jessie is so attuned to fact-checking her own story. She writes, When I was a child, I believed there were things I couldn't reveal about myself, things that made me despicable, unlovable, These were notions I inherited from my own parents who had embodied these beliefs without understanding where they came from. Deep self-knowledge wasn't a mainstay of our culture. Nobody taught me to listen honestly to others. No one taught me to listen well to myself. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. You can find show notes and full transcripts of the episodes at theelisepodcast.com. Please sign up for my newsletter, I Promise I Won't Spam You, or follow me on Instagram at Elise Lunan to get updates on new episodes. I'd also like to give a huge thank you to my sponsors who make this show possible. Please support them the way they support this podcast. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studio. If you enjoyed this episode, Please listen, rate, review, and follow Pulling the Thread, available now for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts, i.e. wherever you're listening right now. I also want to thank you in advance for sharing any episodes with friends you think might like the show, because that is how podcasts grow. I want to give a shout out to Phil Svitek, Lauren Lagrasso, Serena Reagan, Mary-Kate McDonough, and the entire Cadence 13 team for producing these episodes, and to Valero Duvall for my key art. Take care of yourselves. I'll see you next week.